Welcome to the October 12th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll discuss a Phase two trial in patients with T-cell large granular lymphocytic leukemia treated with the inhibitor BNZ1 to block receptor binding of IL-15. Learn more about the outcomes of gene therapy for Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome and discuss ways to mitigate inequity when prioritizing patients for CAR T-cell therapy. We first examine data in the blood article entitled Effective Treatment with the Selective Cytokine Inhibitor, BNZ1, Reveals the Cytokine Dependency of TLGLL Leukemia by Jonathan Brammer from The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, and colleagues. T-cell large granular lymphocytic leukemia is a rare type of clonal proliferation of cytotoxic T lymphocytes that have a terminal effector memory phenotype. TLGLL is associated with autoimmune diseases, like rheumatoid arthritis. Its onset is believed to be triggered by chronic antigen stimulation that leads to clonal proliferation of TLGLL cells. Patients typically present with neutropenia, anemia, or both. In its more severe forms, TLGLL can induce pure red cell aplasia or pancytopenia. The current standard of care for TLGLL involves immune suppression using oral methotrexate, cyclophosphamide, and cyclosporine. However, these agents have demonstrated limited efficacy. The overall response rate is only 38% for frontline methotrexate. Responses to other agents are similar. Interleukin-15 is critical to the development, growth, and survival of various lymphocyte lineages, including cytotoxic T lymphocytes. IL-15 exerts its effect through multiple signaling pathways, including JAK, STAT3, and STAT5. With the help of computational modeling, IL-15 was identified as a critical switch that regulates the survival of TLGLL. In humans, overexpression of IL-15 leads to activation of the STAT3 and 5 pathways in TLGLL cells. Clonal proliferation of leukemic cells in TLGLL leukemia and development of cytopenias. BNZ1 is a pegylated peptide that selectively inhibits the binding of IL-2, IL-9, and IL-15 to their cellular receptor complex involving the gamma-C chain. In studies to date, BNZ1 has demonstrated the ability to inhibit IL-15 and IL-2 cytokines in ex vivo TLGL leukemia cells. In IL-15 transgenic mice, BNZ1 also effectively blocked the in vivo development of CD8 T-cell leukemia and had protective effects against leukemia-induced death. Moreover, in a first in-human phase 1 study, there were no dose-limiting toxicities or severe treatment-related adverse events across a range of BNZ1 doses. The current study reports the findings from a phases 1 and 2 study to evaluate the safety, pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, 
and preliminary efficacy of weekly dosing of BNZ1 in patients with TLGL leukemia. The open-label, dose-ranging, phases 1 and 2 study included 20 patients with terminal effector memory phenotype of TLGLL with a median age of 62 years. 14 patients were enrolled in the dose-finding cohort and 6 in the expansion cohort. The study included a phase 1 dose escalation phase, followed by a phase 2 dose expansion phase of the most efficacious tolerated dose of BNZ1. Patients were assigned to one of four doses, 0.5, 1, 2, or 4 mg per kilogram, administered by infusion on days 1, 8, 15, and 22 of a four-week cycle. A four-week initial treatment period was followed by an optional three-month extension period at the same weekly dose. The primary endpoint was the maximum tolerated dose of BNZ1. Secondary endpoints included the rate of overall response, complete remission rate, partial remission, as well as pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of BNZ1. Four of the 20 studied patients responded to BNZ1, yielding an overall response rate of 20%. A total of four partial responses were observed, three in patients with transfusion-dependent anemia and one in a patient with neutropenia with infections. The responses were rapid and durable, with one lasting beyond 13 months. The median time to response was eight weeks, and the median duration of response was eight months. No dose-limiting toxicities were observed, and the maximum tolerated dose was not reached. The most common treatment emergent adverse events included neutropenia in 24%, anemia in 24%, and white blood cell count decrease in 12% of patients. Grade 3 or 4 adverse events were observed in 88% of patients with neutropenia and 50% of patients with anemia. The authors believe the adverse events were nearly all due to the underlying TLGLL and unrelated to the study drug. To evaluate the effect of BNZ1 on target cells, the authors performed an apoptosis analysis using flow cytometry on TLGLL leukemic cells. As previously observed, rapid apoptosis was observed in the TLGLL cells but not in CD4-positive T-cells after treatment with BNZ1. This suggests that CD4-positive T-cells don't need IL-15 to maintain homeostasis in vivo. Interestingly, dose dependency was not observed in the apoptotic response of TLGLL leukemic cells to BNZ1, and STAT3 mutational status did not affect the apoptotic response of TLGLL leukemic cells. The authors also evaluated whether there was a difference in apoptotic responses in clinical responders versus non-responders. They found that non-responders showed a specific apoptotic response at day two, which subsequently declined and became statistically insignificant. In contrast, TLGLL cells in responders showed a persistent response. Cytokine analysis revealed that treatment did not induce a change in BNZ1 target cytokines, including IL-15, IL-2, IL-2-beta, and IL-9, or in other inflammatory cytokines. Pharmacokinetic experiments showed a dose-related increase in the mean BNZ1 plasma concentrations between days 1 and 22. 
the half-life of BNZ1 was estimated at 17 days. In an accompanying commentary, H. Miles Prince from the University of Melbourne in Victoria, Australia, notes that the findings of Brammer and colleagues demonstrate that blocking IL-15 binding to its receptor using the pegylated peptide BNZ1 in TLGLL patients led to the resolution of cytopenias in 20% of patients. This is the first trial to demonstrate the effectiveness of a therapeutic approach in TLGLL that does not include either methotrexate, cyclophosphamide, or cyclosporine. Apoptosis experiments demonstrated that TLGLL cells are dependent on IL-15 in vivo. In addition, apoptosis was maintained throughout the treatment period in patients who responded, suggesting that they remained sensitive to ongoing BNZ1 therapy. Prince further notes that the lack of any difference in response due to STAT3 mutation status probably means that STAT3 mutations rendered the cells more sensitive to IL-15. Although the current study demonstrated that BNZ1 is effective in a proportion of patients with TLGLL, Prince says that BNZ1 alone cannot be used to manage this disease. Other potential targets for treating TLGLL include inhibitors of other cytokines driving TLGLL cell proliferation, such as PDGF, IL-6, IL-17, and IL-23, as well as critical downstream pathways, such as JAK-STAT. Future studies should focus on combinations of these inhibitors with BNZ1. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the blood article entitled Outcomes of Hematopoietic Stem Cell Gene Therapy for Wiscott-Aldrich Syndrome by Roxanne Labrosse from Boston Children's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts and the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, and colleagues. Wiscott-Aldrich Syndrome is a rare X-linked disorder characterized by combined immunodeficiency, life-threatening infections, eczema, microthrombocytopenia, autoimmunity, and the development of lymphoid malignancies. The standard therapy for Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome is hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. However, this approach is complicated by the risk of graft-versus-host disease and limited by donor availability. Gene therapy is an emerging therapeutic alternative for Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome. This approach entails the infusion of genetically modified autologous HSC and long-term engraftment of functional immune cells. Because autologous cells are used, there is no risk for graft-versus-host disease and no need for a donor. One of the first trials of gene therapy using a gamma retroviral vector in Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome showed major improvements in both immune and platelet defects. However, the vector showed a high rate of insertional oncogenesis, leading to leukemias in 7 out of 9 patients. The first-generation gamma retroviral vectors used for HSC gene therapy have since been replaced by lentiviral vectors. These vectors have a better safety profile due to a decreased rate of integration near transcriptional start sites of potential proto-oncogenes. In addition, Lentiviral vectors are more efficient at transducing quiescent HSCs, which enables improved polyclonal reconstitution. In the current study, the authors report the outcomes of a phases 1 and 2 clinical trial 
in which five patients with Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome underwent gene therapy using a self-inactivating lentiviral vector expressing the human cDNA for the Wiscott-Aldrich protein, or WASP. This vector also incorporated a fragment of the endogenous promoter to drive the expression of this cDNA. The authors also described their results from a detailed analysis of cellular immune functions resulting from transgenic reconstitution of the WASP protein. This was an open-label, non-randomized, single-center, single-arm study, where five patients were treated with a single infusion of autologous CD34-positive cells transduced with the lentiviral vector for WASP expression following sub-myeloablative busulfan and fludarabine conditioning. Patients were between 3 months and 35 years old and had to have genetically confirmed classical or severe Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome. Disease manifestations included eczema, thrombocytopenia, and WASP-related infections. Two subjects had autoimmunity which manifested as skin vasculitis and autoimmune cytopenias. Flow cytometry was employed for WASP staining of lymphocytes, monocytes, and platelets, regulatory B-cell quantification, and VB repertoire studies. All patients tolerated the treatment well and were alive and well with a median follow-up of 7.6 years. They showed robust, sustained, multi-lineage engraftment of gene-corrected cells. Analysis of vector insertion sites showed reconstitution to be highly polyclonal. The expression levels of WASP protein inside corrected cells mostly remained lower than healthy controls. Flow cytometry studies also revealed that the percentage of WASP-expressing cells increased over baseline in all lymphoid lineages, but remained below levels of controls except for two patients in whom the percentage of WASP-positive cells in T lymphocytes reached normal levels. These two patients received the highest CD34-positive cell dose, the highest transduced cell number, and had the highest vector copy number in individual transduced cells. All patients showed a clinical improvement in eczema, infections, and serious bleeding events. In addition, patients affected by cytomegalovirus and Epstein-Barr virus-associated viremias had a clearance of infection. The two patients who had pre-existing autoimmunity had a flare of their symptoms after gene therapy. These patients demonstrated poor numerical recovery of T-cells and regulatory T-cells, IL-10-producing regulatory B-cells, and transitional B-cells. Over time, both of these patients improved and remained free of autoimmune disorders and off of all immune-modulating therapies. There were no adverse events related to the gene therapy. However, one patient developed a paratesticular rhamdomyosarcoma, which was attributed to toxicity associated with the pre-autologous transplant conditioning. He was treated with surgery and chemotherapy with good clinical outcomes after almost two years of follow-up. Taken together, the findings of Labrosse and collaborators indicate that clinical and laboratory manifestations of Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome are improved with gene therapy with an acceptable safety profile. These results affirm prior gene therapy studies for Wiscott-Aldrich that also used this lentiviral vector. In addition, the current study provides new insights on the contribution of regulatory T and B cells in Wiscott-Aldrich-associated immunity. Recovery of the regulatory B-cell compartment, 
along with Tregs, appears to be protective against the development of autoimmunity post-gene therapy. Finally, the authors note that in the absence of comparative trials between gene therapy and allogeneic stem cell transplant, and given the very small number of patients who have undergone gene therapy in this study, it is difficult to conclude whether one procedure is superior to the other for Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome. Future studies should address this question. In the final part of today's podcast, we will review a Perspectives article in Blood entitled Mitigating Inequity, Ethically Prioritizing Patients to CAR T-Cell Therapy by Jennifer Bell from the University of Toronto and Princess Margaret Cancer Centre in Toronto, Canada, and colleagues. CAR T-cell therapy has transformed the treatment outcomes of hematological malignancies and is expanding its application to solid tumors and non-malignant diseases. However, CAR T-cell therapy is performed only at specialized centers and carries significant risks of severe or even fatal complications. CAR-T also faces significant barriers to widespread use as a result of complex logistics, manufacturing limitations, toxicity concerns, and financial burden. Thus, accessibility to CAR-Ts remains a challenge and is especially limited to patients who are disadvantaged based on their socioeconomic status, race, ethnicity, insurance status, and geography. There are currently two CAR T-cell products approved for use in Canada, Tisagen Leclusol and Axacabdogene Silalusol. Because there is no manufacturing site for CAR T's in Canada, the wait lists remain long and distressing for patients who typically have advanced disease. The expanding list of products and indications for CAR T-cell therapy has added to the already existing problem of long wait lists. Moreover, there are currently no established guidelines to assist clinicians in prioritizing CAR-T-eligible patients. Thus, there is a need to prioritize patients to limited treatment slots based on ethical standards. In this Perspectives article, the authors discuss a framework for prioritization of patients based on the Accountability for Reasonableness, or A4R, approach. A4R offers a practical decision-making framework to support procedural justice, that is, a fair process for how decisions are made. This approach has already been used in other healthcare contexts where issues concerning fair resource allocation exist, including, most recently, vaccine allocation during the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. The A4R approach is based on five conditions, relevance, empowerment, revision, publicity, and enforcement. The authors first formed a multidisciplinary working group spanning several hematological malignancies, including leukemia, lymphoma, and myeloma. Throughout multiple meeting sessions, the working group used A4R guiding principles to identify four main criteria to prioritize patients for CAR-Ts, medical benefit, safety and risk of complications, psychosocial factors, and medical urgency. Taking into account the importance of following this ordered sequence in criteria assessment, the working group developed a transparent three-step ethical prioritization process. In the scope of step one, the medical benefit of CAR T-cell therapy is assessed by a disease-specific team based on partner-developed medical benefit assessment tool A. Patients then proceed to step two when any degree of benefit is established. 
In the scope of Step 2, a multidisciplinary team, including a cell therapy specialist, social worker, nurse, psychologist, and others, evaluate the functional and psychological challenges that may affect treatment tolerance and arrange support for those patients who may need it, patients for whom CAR-T therapy is considered medically beneficial and who have an acceptable toxicity risk and adequate psychosocial support, proceed to Step 3. In Step 3, patients are discussed in the weekly Cell Therapy Review Committee meetings, where multiple disease sites, disciplines, and clinical staff participate in consensus review and prioritization. The next steps at the author's institution are already underway, where they will evaluate the usability, acceptability, and clinical feasibility of developed prioritization tools, as well as survey the end users before introducing additional refinements and modifications. In an accompanying commentary, Maria Kuypers and Marie-José Kersten from the University of Amsterdam Medical Center note that Bell and collaborators should be commended for their commitment to ensuring equal access to CAR T-cell therapy when therapy slots are scarce. Although the author's processes and tools, based on ethical considerations for CAR T-cell therapy selection, may inspire other medical centers, Kuypers and Kirsten emphasize that the usability and acceptability of this framework still need to be studied in the real world. Moreover, CAR T-cell therapy is associated with other moral dilemmas, such as when patients do not completely fit the eligibility criteria, when there is a high risk for toxicity, and in cases of rapidly progressive disease and unrealistic treatment expectations. Acknowledging and addressing these moral dilemmas is important for the well-being of both patients and caregivers. As the treatment landscape continues to evolve, off-the-shelf alternative therapies such as bispecific antibodies may in part replace the overwhelming need for CAR-T therapy. Kuypers and Kirsten are optimistic that, in the future, evidence-based algorithms will be able to predict individual efficacy, outcome, and risk of toxicity, and assist in prioritizing patients for therapy. Until then, ethical frameworks, such as the one developed by Bell and collaborators, may help ensure transparency and equity in patient selection. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.